0: Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare.
1: Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. All right, pop quiz. What's something that you do 20,000 times a day, but you never think about? If you said checking your emails or your social media, I hope that's not true. The correct answer is actually how many breaths you take in a day. This is based on the widely accepted norm that we all breathe approximately 12 to 16 breaths a minute while at rest. But what if this is not actually the optimal rate of breathing? Another interesting fact, did you know that for every 10 pounds of fat lost in our body, eight and a half pounds comes through our lungs? It comes actually out through carbon dioxide and water vapor. So maybe we can start forgetting about uh, restricting those carbs. The role of breath in human health goes back thousands of years. Asian and Hindu cultures took breathing very seriously and incorporated it into their meditation and yoga practices. Today, with all the stress in the world with COVID-19, we need more than ever to pay attention to our breathing and how it allows us to feel hopefully less stressed, less anxious, and less depressed. And what also if it could naturally lower our blood pressure, help us sleep better, or even exercise more vigorously. My guest today, Dr. Donald Noble, is an expert in researching this area of how optimal breathing can affect our mood and energy. He is a physiologist and behavioral scientist at Emory University. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Donald Noble to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it.
1: Okay. Yeah, we want to hear a lot of what you have to say. I was interested in a lot of your quotes in Discover Magazine. It was in the issue, let's see. Yes, September, October. It's actually a very favorite science magazine of mine. So Dr. Noble, I usually like to find out from my guests why they went into a specific field. So I I believe you're a physiologist. Can you explain why, I guess, you went into the area of respiratory physiology?
0: Yeah, so my interest stemmed from an interest in meditation. And I joined Emory University with the thought that I would be involved in several of their ongoing studies into meditation techniques and specifically compassion and attentional meditation techniques. So I've always been interested in the idea that you can control your autonomic function, your behavior, and your physiology by engaging in these practices that, you know, they look at your thoughts, they look at your sensations, and fundamentally they change your breathing. And I don't think I gained an appreciation of that until I joined the physiology department here, part of the the graduate uh, neuroscience program, and I so it just so happened uh, synchronistically that the attentional and longitudinal uh, meditation study I was involved in here moved to Arizona a semester after I joined Emory. So I, I joined a lab that was really on the spinal cord electrophysiology, kind of the, the mechanistic side of things. And they were flexible enough and at the time had enough funding that they were amenable to letting me look at the basic uh, pure physiology of what happens when you take a slow, deep breath. And so thankfully I met a a mentor who was very open-minded and allowed me to pursue a rodent model of what happens when you breathe slowly and deeply with the goal of modeling that really kind of pure physiological component and saying, well, what portion of the benefits of different meditation techniques might be accounted for by just the basic act of breathing? Um, And so I've really uh, fallen in love, I think, with this area over the last 10 years and to the point that it's become my own independent inclination um, and I think there's a long way to go. And then you, uh, you gave me the motivation to finish reading this book by uh, James Nestor. Yeah, Breath. it's a great
1: book. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to hold it up for um, any of our people who watch this on YouTube. It's called Breath. It's by James Nestor. I actually got to speak with him a few months ago. I just told him he wrote the book that I wanted to write because it was so well written, a very interesting story. Because I love when you, as you know, as scientists and you know, and physicians, we can write very dry, important journal articles, but when you incorporate it into a story, almost like a Michael Lewis kind of story, you know, he did, uh, I just read his book, I think Pandemic was great. You know, you get so involved and you get to enjoy the richness of it. Uh, One more question though, regarding background though. So are you actually, is it physiology? Is it in psycho pharmacology? I don't know. What was, what was your like sort of undergrad and then PhD in?
0: Yeah, my PhD itself was in neuroscience. Um neuroscience. there are a number okay. of departments that host the program. So I was in the department of physiology. Um and that was I think a blessing because really it, it was it, it it gave me a kind of a new perspective on things and it it allowed me to start to say, well, what are the what are the afferents? What are the basic biological mechanisms that are right. involved in in breathing slowly and deeply? And then the, you know, as the book that you mentioned that describes, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of that in more detail, you know, especially in the basic sciences, it's really easy to get lost in your niche, which was the case for me. You know, I I've I I you you mentioned I'm an expert in uh, and and breathing. Really, the the funny thing about science these days is that when you say you're an expert in anything, probably you're an expert in slow, deep breathing, maybe at a specific frequency. You know, there's an increasing Right. It's
1: it's like the Dostoevsky thing. He said, one day specialist would be specialist in the right nostril and another day, another year in the left nostril. You're right. It becomes so (laughs) micromanaged. And, you know, I practice actually holistic medicine and a lot of patients who come to me, It's because I move out of my comfort zones. I mean, that sounds like what you did in your area, which is unusual because everybody is, you can, you know, tries to be so super specialized and find that one little parcel of information that's, you know, considered important and that gives them tenure and whatever makes them famous, the whole thing. You know, I'll just share with you too, because I think it's it's fun to do this. You know, my interest in breath work actually goes back to my medical training days when I was a medical resident in New York City during the 1980s, at the height of the AIDS crisis, I was caring for dying AIDS patients. I was up all night putting IVs, drawing blood. I was super stressed, and I started to develop chronic back pain. And I went to an orthopedist that you know was in the hospital, and uh, you know I told him I, I you know I couldn't get comfortable and. And he suggested, well, you know, you might need back surgery. And I was like, "Uh oh, I said, I'm right in the middle of residency here. I can't do a back surgery. So I was fortunate enough that somebody turned me on to yoga. And this led me down a whole other path. I think I had mentioned to you when we had corresponded before, I I did a workshop with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, who was tremendous. He he led the mindfulness program at University of Massachusetts for many years. It was interesting because his clinic was called the chronic pain and stress clinic. And I mean, he was actually featured in Bill Moyers Healing in the Mind series. It was really fascinating how he had these patients that had severe chronic pain and the university doctors were referring to him because they had given up hope on so many of these patients who just didn't respond to the surgeries or medications. And through mindfulness, meditation, and essentially breathing, he was able to get these people to a much better quality of life and that changed the focus of my career because when I, I i must have gone to his works about 4 or 5 years into my own private practice where i was feeling the limitations and so anyway so i think this is where our interests are merging so let's get on to your expertise can you please explain to our listeners and the viewers what the essential findings of your research and i know that's a big ask because there's a lot in there but you know, when you talk about in your papers that I have that you sent me, pulmonary, afferent, slow, deep breathing, it's quite technical, you know, how it does the neural induction of physiological relaxation. Maybe you could explain a little bit, and I know in lieu of James Nestor's work, which we'll get into as we discuss this, you know, what you're finding and what you're excited about.
0: Yeah, I, first of all, I I absolutely love the Nestor book. I also actually think he could write a second book just based on some of what we're starting to realize, not not we uh, just being being my lab but it's funny you know only a small percentage actually ends up being in your lab because there's so much going on these days that you take inspiration from wherever it is and there are a lot of people doing really i think groundbreaking research right now i think to me the the biggest takeaway with where things are going at the moment is this idea of kind of unlocking or reinforcing basic physiological rhythms and one of the easiest ways to do this is by accessing your autonomic nervous system. And one of the only volitional ways to do that is with your breathing. So we right. know that, you know, autonomic, it's uh, autonomous. It's generally, it's self-control. It does its thing. You don't, everyone will say, you know, you don't have control over your autonomic nervous system. Right, because you,
1: you supposedly, that's the, by, almost by definition, it's autonomic. You don't think about it, right? Right.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. exactly. So generally, it's still phrased that way. Often, is that it's automatic; you can't control it. Uh, We know that's not entirely true. Even going back to the '60s, there are studies saying that that's not entirely true. But what's really cool, I think, recently, and that James Nestor mentions this in his book as well, um, but is this idea that you can directly control your autonomic nervous system by the way you breathe? Um, And one of the things that I that I think hasn't been appreciated quite as much is that you can do this in a way that actually resonates with rhythms that you have ongoing as you're part of your basic biology. Um, and this hasn't still been, I think just recently this has gained more traction. but um, for instance, you know we talk about breathing at six breaths per minute or 5.5 breaths per minute. And so well, why is that important? You know the go-to answer for that I think is things like heart rate variability. So if you inhale, if you just try it like now even, you can feel your heartbeat increasing as you inhale and then as you exhale, you can really clearly feel that decrease in your heart rate as you breathe out. And so that's the really basic idea behind heart rate variability is that that difference between it going up your heartbeat when you inhale and going down when you exhale is known as heart rate variability.
1: Perfect, you hit my next question. Cause I was gonna ask, I was a little confused even myself what heart rate variability meant. So you're basically saying that, I just wanna make this clear for the audience and myself, that so when we breathe in, if you take a nice deep breath in, our heart starts to beat faster. Yes. And when we breathe out, exhaling, it almost feels relaxing. Our heart rate starts to go down. Now, the variability, which again, I'm going to jump here and I'll make an analogy that's clear to me and I hope to my listeners. Like when I look at an EKG, you know, and there's the QRS, everybody's seen that QRS complex on TV, you know, the heart rhythm. And so from one QRS complex to the next, is considered a heartbeat and variability. So when you're saying heart rate variability is going up, meaning that the width between heartbeats is lengthening when you're taking deep breaths?
0: Right. So probably the most reliable measure is exactly what you're saying, that the interval between consecutive heartbeats is changing. That's a really... Basically, they usually
1: stay very steady. Like when somebody, you know, when I look at an EKG on a person, I'm sorry to get a little technical now for the audience, but when I look at an EKG in a person, let's say, okay, their heart rate is 75. And that's like pretty steady. I mean, unless they have an arrhythmia like atrial fibrillation where it's all over the place. But so you're saying I, I guess it has to be very subtle. I mean, you wouldn't maybe even see it on an EKG, or you would that the heart rate increases, like let's say it would go from like 75 Let's say if I quartered just well, let's say they're laying on the table breathing. Well, let's say they're breathing regularly and it's going 75, 70, 75. I said, okay, now take a nice deep breath in. It would maybe jump to 80 or something like that. Is that
0: it, So here's the I, I'm glad you fed into it that way. Cause the amazing thing is actually that it's pretty drastic. That on the order of up to 40 breaths per minute, you can have a difference. But so if really? you really, oh, yeah, wow. For instance, now if they have all these devices that are commercialized, so they have biofeedback devices, and they, a lot of the ones that are used for therapeutic purposes are based on the idea of heart rate variability. And so what they do is they produce curves where you can see your heartbeat changing in real time. And the idea is that you want to maximize that peak trough difference as you're Mm -hmm. describing that. And so you would see it reflected on EKG as, you know, an interval changing during your inhalation, those uh, QRS waves would be closer, and they'd be further away during during an exhalation. I don't work a lot with EKG. I don't know. Maybe there's some technicality that makes it hard to see when you're recording mm. it on, in real time. Um, no. But I would think, based on how much your heartbeat can change between those different between the inhalation and exhalation, that that it would be reflected. I I don't know for sure. And one of the other things is the way most people don't breathe. Most people breathe. You wouldn't see that because most people don't breathe in a really slow and deep manner. Yeah,
1: we're going to get into that in a second too. Yeah, you're leading me on perfectly. But a quick question too, because an increased heart rate variability is a good
0: thing? It's a great thing. So that's one of the easiest connections to health. You know, a lot of the meditation stuff, people are still saying, oh, well, where's the evidence? What grade is it? Heart rate variability, for whatever reason, has generally been fairly well accepted as a metric of physical fitness, mental wellness.
1: Well, doesn't that also happen, I guess, when people exercise vigorously, like their heart rate goes up and then later on it comes down. So again, that's, you know, even though like you think, oh gosh, is it dangerous? Somebody's heart rate gets up to 160 when they exercise, but we know that people who exercise tend to be pretty healthy.
0: Right. And I think this alludes to the, I think you even on, on your website, you describe it as kind of related to doing a workout or when you, mm-hmm. when you do your allergy therapy. And right. I think of it a little similar when it comes to to breathing or to, to exercise anything that changes heart rate variability in a way. I think the simplest analogy is that you are, you're working out a system that maybe is under stimulated in the, in the modern world. So a Mm. system that generally is more kind of flatlined and you're kind of introducing some variability. It's like lifting dumbbells, you know, you're going, you're alternating, you're building a bit of fitness back into it. Um, and so what you say, absolutely that exercise kind of brings you one way. It's almost like a prolonged, increase in that variability where you're huffing and puffing, you're breathing faster, your heart rate's going up for a prolonged period. And then often people will find, as you say, they come back down and, you know, their respiration starts to slow, their heartbeat starts to slow. Probably there's also this added influence of endorphins and all these things yeah. that the stress response has right. stimulated. Right. But absolutely, I think and in both cases, you're, you know, you're working out a system that, you know, in our sedentary lifestyle might not really get a lot of action.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk the next thing, which is really, it's physiological and it's also anatomical. Because I said, that's why I was asking your background, because, you know, it's very interesting, you know, people who are interested in anatomy, look at structure a lot, people a lot of times in physiology. And I did I did some undergraduate neuroscience, you know, they're looking at it from a different angle. But one of the most important things, again, that I learned from training a little bit with John Kabat-Zinn and other people doing, you know, mindfulness breathing was the importance between deep breaths and shallow breaths, and also really the differentiation between what I would describe as what we call chest breathing and belly breathing. And I just want to say one thing before I want to hear your, you know, when I have patients that come into my office and evaluating them for various reasons, they may be under a lot of stress. They may have, let's say, for example, gastric reflux. This is a really common one, by the way. When I have a lot of patients with gastric reflux or asthma, things that involve the, the chest area, I tend to almost always find, what I do is I have them put their, let's say their right hand on their chest and their left hand right above their belly button. I have them breathe in. And typically what I see is that they're just moving their chest. They're not using their diaphragm at all, which again, I learned, and I want to hear your explanation, you know, that why it's so important to get what's called, quote, belly breathing, diaphragmatic breathing. And I tell patients also that, you know, it's interesting because I was fortunate enough in my training, you know, when we would see newborns. And when you go into a newborn nursery, if you watch them breathing, all you see is their belly moving up and down incredibly, you know, and, and as adults, you know, you don't see too much of anything. So, so tell us the importance between diaphragmatic or belly breathing and chest breathing. I mean, if that's come up in your research.
0: Yeah. So I, first I, I should qualify just a bit to the last thing that because uh I have to try to be precise with terms as in you know in the biological sciences. There's there's this difference between respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is technically the inhalation exhalation change in heart rate. Heart rate variability can be any variation in heart rate, so it doesn't necessarily have to coincide with your breathing. Right. I just wanted to mention that because technically those are two different terms, but often right. you'll find them used interchangeably. Um, but having said that, that, that relates to your question as well. So diaphragmatic deep belly breathing. Um, first of all, it does a much better job of activating that pronounced heart rate variability. So if you think if you're breathing through your chest, you're probably taking shallower breaths, you're probably not having as much of a contrast in what you're doing to your heart rate in real time as you're taking that inhalation and exhalation. Um, And one of the reasons why, which is you know, I, I'm a bit biased because you know I, everyone who, who studies something obviously ascribes a, a greater importance to what they study necessarily than, than, than the rest of the realm. But there does seem to be a growing recognition that there's these stretch-sensitive mechanoreceptors in your lungs and bronchi, possibly in your abdomen. I don't know if that's been researched yet. That's probably a conversation for another day. But stretching these out actually uh, projects through your vagus nerve. They send signals through your vagus nerve when they're stretched and that results in this oscillatory cycle between inhalation and exhalation. And so I know we, we talked about a little bit and in the, the book, the Nestor book, you know, he talks a lot, quite a bit about blood gases and carbon dioxide. And we're going to get oxygen. to that
1: too. Yeah. And, and that, that's obviously... <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to get to it all. because. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so obviously that's a huge component in chemoreception. What we found just more recently is that, and what our hypothesis in, in the paper that I sent you was all about was that... When you're breathing uh, slowly and deeply, you're activating, you're stretching out your lungs, you're stretching out your airways, and you're doing so in a way that activates these mechanoreceptors that normally aren't activated. So these, these, for instance, these slowly adapting pulmonary receptors, they have a threshold that activates them. So if you're just breathing shallowly and especially through your chest, you're not going to activate these afferents. So they're just sitting there. They're not doing anything. But then, when you take a slow and deep breath, even moderately deep. So, I think this this might tie into what we're going to talk about with the you know buteco and the voluntary elimination no, no. of breath. You know, there may be some disadvantage to breathing too deeply for prolonged, you know, mm. or, or hyperventilating. But it appears that when you reach a threshold, you activate these afferents that are understimulated, and they really contribute to this oscillation in heart rate. They contribute to ventilatory efficiency. And what I think is the, the really the coolest of all is they contribute to downstream brain oscillations that have been shown to be therapeutic when it comes to memory function, attention, fear reduction, or anxiety.
1: Well, we're going to get into that too. Yeah, these, these are really cool things. What I'm going to try to do, because I think we're going to be a great combination today, is you're going to give the hardcore science, because I don't want people to say, oh, this is fuzzy wuzzy stuff, you know, but I'm going to make some relations as we go a little bit further in uh, the specific clinical things. Cause I see it on a daily basis. You know, one other thing too, I just want to add again, one of the, I guess the interesting and fortunate things of like myself in medical training is, you know, I did anatomy. And even though it was many, many years ago, uh, 40 years ago, I think that I'll never forget how struck I was when we did, you know, the anatomy dissections of the abdomen. And I saw what the diaphragm looks like. I still to this day tell patients it looks like a slashed tire And that's how thick it is. It's one of the thickest muscles in the body, I believe. And obviously it's under this special neurological, what we call innervation, but it's a huge muscle. And that's why I say, when I see patients that have like gastric reflux, I tell them, and I see that their breathing is very shallow. Or, you know, I said, you're basically, your diaphragm is squeezing the esophagus, the feeding area that goes right through there. And it's just squeezing it because you're so tense. And that whole idea of, you know, long, deep breaths, relaxing the diaphragm, getting the full stretch the way you would want to stretch any other muscle in the body can have tremendous, it's it's helped a lot of my patients as much as acid blocking medications and and things like that. So anyway, so let me ask you this too, for our listeners, because they want to really know too, how does somebody learn? Let's say you get some, I, I know how I teach patients in my office, but I'm curious for you again, in your work, you know, and you said you, you know, one of the things that drew you into the field was meditation. How do you teach somebody to be a slow breather? And my part two of the question is, let's say you show them, but you're demonstrating them and they do a couple of minutes a day. How do they continue to do that throughout the day?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's actually, in a way it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit disappointing that that's such a good question. Cause you'd think that if you realize that it was good for you, you'd be more inclined, but we, right. We live in a culture where, you know, the simple fix is the hot thing. So if you can find a way to put smart lights in your room that oscillate and encourage you to breathe deeply, you know, that's probably better than actually doing the discipline work. It's hard to convince someone to do it. And I think it's almost made harder paradoxically by the fact that if you walk around, you're bound to see signs saying, just take a deep breath. You know, the more you see it, the more it becomes cliche and the more that actually trying it out.
1: Right. It seems that, that can't help. That can't, right. <laughs> can't possibly help.
0: <laughs> right. And so I, I think there is some truth to the fact that you you need to have an intent there. The one thing I will say that's encouraging is that I found in my personal experience and, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor in the you know the clinical sense. But the one thing I've found from from working with people and, you know, an instructor position or, or a teaching sense is that, if you once people start doing it and they realize that it's not just about relaxation, it becomes a bit easier. And the other thing is that because you because you're kind of in training certain brain networks to be more flexible when it comes to attentional function, uh, it almost helps your sense of intent a little bit. If you're in a better cognitive state, you're more likely to be disciplined. You're more likely to be able to focus, and you're more likely to be able to engage. So I think getting over that first hump of trying it, try, sitting down for 20 minutes. Following a timer that shows how your abdomen's expanding, or just following a timer and trying to track that.
1: Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea because you know I, I teach that to patients when I first started doing meditation, and then later on, it's interesting when I did John Kabat Zinn's meditation thing. They did it so nicely, like they would, you know, they would basically say we're going to meditate twenty minutes because the minimum that's important, and then they had the little like, you know, Buddhist chimes that would kind of go up. So it wouldn't like startle you, you know, because it kind of, after doing that whole relaxation to be startled by an alarm, not the best thing. But yeah, I I agree with you. I think because what would happen with meditation or with this breathing, you, you know, you're doing it for about 10 seconds and it feels about like 10 minutes. So if you can take your mind off the time and just focus on your breathing, I mean, that's what they really do, what they he calls mindfulness breathing or meditation. It's focusing on your breath, which it sounds again, like, how do I do that? But once you start doing it, you kind of learn to do it. And it has a lot of, lot of benefits. I, I agree with you hundred percent.
0: Yeah. and I, I'm really interested in the mindfulness angle personally, because that in a way you have the added ingredient of that being helpful in focusing your attention. On the other hand, I've personally found that if there are things in your life you're not facing, your biology is going to try to find ways to make you, uh, to make you rebel against practicing it. I know that sounds a little uh, wishy-washy maybe, but I've just found that, like you said, it's funny. You can watch a show on Netflix and now we'll we'll go by in five minutes, but you can try to breathe slowly for five minutes and it's almost impossible to do. It's just too long.
1: Yeah. It seems like an hour.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's like an hour. And I, it's interesting how time warps like that, but I do do think the good thing go ahead. Sorry.
1: Yeah. No, I was going to say you bring up such great points. We're going to get to later on about with athletes. Like, how they I I found this is like what they call being in the zone or the flow. Time slows down. But the, I think a lot of them also we'll talk about this because I'm very into tennis, how they use their breathing to slow down a point or to, you know, things like that. But I want to get to next because this is also really important. It does hit home very much with what I do in my practice or what I really did actually for many years, It was a bigger part of my practice than it is today. It's the difference between nasal breathing and mouth breathing. And if you know too, I know because you just finished reading the the Nestor book, Breath, that he has a incredible chapter on mouth breathing. With him and his co-researcher uh, in the project, Anders Olsen, I have his book. I just got it. It was really interesting. He's uh, from Norway, and they were both had their noses plugged up with these like silicone plugs and just mouth breathed for, I forgot how long it was, like a week or something, and it was crazy. Their blood pressure was shooting up 15, 20 points. Their mood was terrible. They couldn't sleep. And all the years of my practice, you know, when I would see patients that had a bad cold or I had patients that had chronic allergic rhinitis from pollen or animal dander or patients with a deviated septum, you know, of course we, we'd see them and say, Oh gosh, yeah, it's terrible. Not being able to breathe through your nose, but at least you got your mouth. <laughs> you know? But now, I mean, seeing what Nesta brings up how detrimental it is to do mouth breathing. What, what was your take about that in the book and, you know, how serious it is?
0: Yeah, I, I probably, to be completely honest, I thought he was uh, comprehensive. I mean, he, he had a yeah. take that kind of got at it from all angles. And I learned a lot from the book about that. I, yeah, you know, I it was great. The funny thing about, you know, I, I study in animal models, for instance, the model of physiology, they're obligate nose breathers. So we don't really differentiate between nose and mouth. It's not like they can huff and puff through their mouth. This mm. is a, a human uh, specialty <laughs> has been to disevolve this habit. And so I I think it's interesting because it, you know, it's bad for at least a couple of reasons, right? I mean, one of them being that you're, you know, you're inhaling through the mouth, you're not humidifying, you're not pressurizing it you're basically uh, disrupting the soft tissue that's there you're not doing the things you need to take possible, you know, pathogens, whatever's coming into the air is coming into you for the most part.
1: Those are great points. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. And so I, I, to me, it makes sense that, you know, I think the way it's phrased in the book is that it can actually detrimentally impact the lungs, even at the cellular level. To be honest, I I don't know all the the cellular level research of how the lungs are disrupted. You might know more about that since you study this in the context of asthmatics, for instance. Right. Um, But but it, it's it's amazing that this corresponds so thoroughly to our development when it came to to our mouths kind of losing their luster over time, not being able to chew or you know chewing processed food so that we don't put the same demands. You know, I think it's the same for the mouth as it is for our brain. You know, that if you don't use a system, you're going to lose its its strengths. And so, I for instance, I even this morning I told you I just randomly ran into uh, a colleague who I who I found out just this morning has. Uh, severe asthma for i guess 30 mm. years and uh was saying that that she noticed that she just mouth breathes all the time every night uh, and did a similar thing i think in the book you mentioned they put on tape and they put on on nasal silicone plugs to and uh, same thing you know she tried out at one stage switching it up and discovered that that she felt better but then without a prolonged effort you go right back to the habit and mm. intertwines with things like your posture anything that blocks the airways right. you can interfere with right. that it
1: was so interesting to me again clinically from over the years you know as i said especially my early years when i was doing so much allergy work you know now i do a lot of holistic and microbiome work but that i didn't appreciate how much the patients let's say especially let's say i saw a lot of chronic allergy patients and not, not even the asthmatics but the rhinitis patients how irritable they would become when it would, they couldn't breathe through their nose how tired they felt you know, so it's like the kind of thing that people say, Oh, you know, like just kind of suck it up, you know, get, get tougher. Like their colleagues at work, you know, or you just have allergies. And, you know, yes, they were uncomfortable from the allergies, but they were had other symptoms along with that. And again, that's what I think the book brings out and why it's important also. I mean, that you do have to treat those underlying problems. If you have a severe deviated septum, if you have severe allergies, that's why I do like these sublingual allergy drops. You got to do something so people can breathe. And I know I don't have allergies, but I know when I when I used to do a lot of my breathing and yoga work, that if I had a bad cold, I I would have to use a little bit of Afrin or something to open my nose up because it's torture if you have to try to do yoga poses or stretching or whatever, or breath work when you can't breathe through your nose.
0: Yeah, and and it probably you know actually learning how to do that it probably kind of it flexes your system in the same way that it does to to breathe less you know to to actually up your carbon right, dioxide right. levels if you're and right. so I think all those things go together you know if you're not using the system it's, it's you're not going to get better the part that that I would add to that that I I think it is really exciting and I don't even know if it had been published really by the time that that Nestor started writing his book but is that There's recent evidence that suggests that when you're breathing through your nose, that actually, depending on how you do that, that can actually uh, stimulate neural patterns all the way up to your olfactory bulb, your hippocampus. The reason that's relevant is that those are the regions that control memory, that control cognition. So if you're doing that and you're stimulating those pathways, not only are you maybe eventually decongesting or feeling better but you're also actually improving some of the cognition that maybe makes up for the murkiness that you described, you know, when it comes to feeling tired or feeling fatigued, like there might actually be even a direct pathway kind of to the, to enhancing that's cognition. A, that's a great point for it. any of
1: our, our college students listening. You know, you're studying a little bit, take a break, take your, you know, take up like three, four minutes of nice deep breaths. You're going to pay attention better and, uh and you'll remember the material better. So another, you know, I was the one to help out the college kids. I, I hated it <laughs> when I was in
0: school. I'm going to um, share this with my classes too now, Right,
1: right. Tell all those, those Emory's there, because I know the teachers are really tough there.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one of them. I'm a good cop.
1: Yeah, all right, that's good. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to something else that, again, floored me. And I mean floored me by reading the chapter in Nestor's book about, and this was also uh, his colleague Olson emphasized this, about how carbon dioxide being more important than oxygen to our health. I find this fascinating and perplexing. And I'd like to get your thoughts on it. I don't know if it's your area of specialty, but just the way we look at this, that, that higher levels of retained carbon dioxide, which we're supposed to be breathing out, are more important than oxygen. It's almost counterintuitive. It's like, you know, when I have a patient that would come in for any reason, you know, like let's say they're, you know, again, something respiratory where they're having trouble breathing, or you see an athlete on the sideline of a football game, what do they do when he's short of breath? They plump on some, uh, you know, a mask of oxygen on them. Maybe they're doing the wrong thing. What's your, what's your thoughts about that?
0: Yeah. So I I think it's true in the sense that carbon dioxide tends to be the kind of the input variable that determines how we're breathing. You know, we have chemoreceptors that respond to it. Right. Uh, So I do think that you know, neither Nestor nor, nor yourself, you know, obviously makes the point that that oxygen is less important in, in that it's the vital source of energy sustenance for our tissues. Uh, I think that one way of looking at it would be that oxygen is so important that it's really tightly regulated, that it's not really that you generally you'll maintain a similar oxygen level even when you're breathing less you know, you tend to maintain a similar oxygen level. Obviously, things like COVID that can come into question, um, but that's a fairly severe viral infection situation. Yes. Um, the reason I think that carbon dioxide is so much more important is that it's what really controls your system's response to breathing more or less. So there's more variability in how you know you you mentioned and in the book, you know, he talks about how you know, asthmatics, for instance, probably have less carbon dioxide, you know, in their system. And so they, you know, there may be compensatory actions to account for that. Or there may be behaviors that make it that way, you know, because they consistently (laughs) behave, you know, at a lower threshold, for instance. There's different behaviors that they have that correspond to lower levels of carbon dioxide. Whereas a lot of the breathing techniques that try to you know, lengthen exhalation or provide breath holds are trying to rebuild up that carbon dioxide level. And so um, in a way it's trying to return to normalcy. I think it, it actually, I honestly, I thought it uh, mirrored a little bit uh, your your allergen therapy in the sense that you're rebuilding a level of a substance that's essential back to normalcy. Mm. And then you hit that and then guess what? You have normal behavior again. You're breathing more normally. And the ideal epiphenomenon would be that you also are less congested.
1: Okay. So let's go back to something also, which maybe he mentions in the book. I think maybe you mentioned in your article, because I think it's important, you know, because most of us, and again, as a doctor, I'm trained when I measure somebody's pulse and, you know, respiratory rate, let's say if they were either in my office or back in the day when I was in an emergency room, we wanted, let's say the respiratory rate to be between 12 and 16 breaths a minute. And if it was a lot faster than that, I mean, I might have an asthmatic, even a pediatric asthmatic. They're breathing 24, 30, 40 breaths a minute, which is really bad. I mean, they were super releasing carbon dioxide and they were. I was worried about them getting exhausted. But how do we go? It's almost like in reverse here because I think Olson mentions, and I guess really, if you know what you're saying, that six seconds in, six seconds out. I mean, that could take you down to you know six breaths a minute, which sounds like it might be the ideal breath. How do you learn to do that?
0: Yeah, so uh, in the simplest sense, in some sense, you have to, I think, face your uh, face your respiratory demons in the in the sense that it takes some practice, and at first, it's harder that you know at your initial stage of doing it it's a lot harder. You're stretching out a system that hasn't been stretched out much. And so I think that's also the argument that he would probably make, you know, that you want to, when they're going on that run, for instance, in the book, you know, that you gradually lengthen your exhalation and it becomes almost intolerable for a period. And in a lot of ways, I think of it as being similar to exercise or jogging. You know, if you can get over that initial hump, it becomes easier. And then maybe you try a little bit more the next time and then a little bit more the next time. I do think that I I should be careful in saying that, you know, six breaths per minute might not just be the magic number for everyone. Um, The reason why it is a magic number, which I'll just allude to briefly, if we have time, we can talk about it more, but is there's actually oscillations in your blood pressure in the background at six breaths per minute. It's inherent to the system and you actually kind of, you can unlock or reinforce these by breathing at that rate. And it's almost six breaths per minute in everyone. It changes a little bit depending on height, age. Mm. Uh, things like that. But generally it seems to maximize that concept we discussed earlier, heart rate variability. And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's the reason that this has any kind of special property, but it's not a uniquely special property in the sense that as you get closer to that frequency, you are increasing these therapeutic parameters. You're increasing your heart rate variability. So it's not like an all or none. It's like, just as you learn the habit you're yeah. probably getting closer and closer. And just because of what that does to your mindset, it probably makes it easier on you as you go along.
1: You know, it's interesting you saying that too, because of what I found, I mean, because of course, let's say when I've taken even meditation workshops, and I've done a few with Dean Ornish, with Kabat-Zinn. I actually were gonna get to Herbert Benson at Harvard. You know, it's interesting when you would do it for a little bit prolonged time, let's say like 20 minutes. I mean, that's a typical half hour. You're not doing it for three hours. I mean, I wasn't on a Buddhist retreat, but it's interesting when you'd come out of the, meditation thing for a while, not for, not, not the whole day, but maybe for another half hour, an hour, I definitely felt like, you know, my, my head was clearer. I mean, something, if it came at me, a problem, I would be less, you know, stressed or rattled. So I guess it's like building a good muscle, you know, building a good habit that the more regularly, I mean, John Kevinson used to say this all the time. He used to call it the practice You know, he goes, it's, that's what it is. You're practicing every day. You know, you never reach perfection. You never get it right. Don't ever settle that. Like, oh, I'm the master now. You know, it's, you just, every day it's the practice. And some days it'll be naturally harder than others. But that's a fascinating thing itself. You say, it's like, why am I struggling today? You know, it's like sort of, it takes you inside yourself. And, uh, you know, I find that interesting.
0: Yeah. I think the counterpoint to it getting easier with practice is, is what you're describing, which is that. If you needed to improve your breathing, once you start improving it, you've lost a little bit of the incentive to do so. And in the case of in the case of mindfulness meditation, I think it's tricky because once you once you say you're there, you know, that's a thought that you should be watching, that you're not that's really right. there. That's right. And so that's right. It, to me, it's it's an endless and a, a funny thing that I will just mention briefly is that I, I've discovered repeatedly that a lot of the researchers that I know who study meditation, probably including myself describe themselves as terrible meditators and just say like, oh, and I, maybe the reason why is because there's that element of self-analysis there. That's just- Right.
1: That's the Buddhist area where, you know, let let the thoughts go away. That much I know. And I'm definitely an amateur, but you're (laughs) right. And, and, you know, one of the things too, I wanted to bring up just for our sports fans to relate to, you know, I'll never forget- I'm a huge tennis fan, but even growing up, I was a huge basketball fan, you know, and even to this day, I love watching the college kids play basketball. But if you ever see a player go to the foul line, and especially if it's an important time of the game, you see them, you know, they they have their rhythm, they bounce the ball a few times, but almost invariably, they take a nice deep breath before they would shoot. And I used to look at it and say, God, this guy must be so exhausted. He's taking this like really nice deep breath before he has to shoot this foul shot when nobody's guarding him. And it wasn't until after I had done Cabin zinns work that I realized, you know what? No, he is increasing his focus by taking that deep breath. And that's why, you know, the good ones, you know, make a lot of them. So would you agree? I mean, that in sports, when you see the players who, I mean, I think they're just well coached you know, I don't think it's something natural. I think you have to work at this, that they do this because it increases their focus and quote, getting in the zone.
0: Absolutely. And I think there there's something special to be said about taking a deep breath after you've been exerting yourself. Why that is, I'm not sure that science has anything to say on that yet, but I, I repeatedly found I'm, I, I've tried to apply it to a number of uh, to a number of different sports, and I've repeatedly found that if I'm just trying to breathe slowly and deeply, it almost acclimates at some point, it habituates. But if you if you're exerting yourself, it's and uh, you know this goes back to to what you said about exercise, and then you kind of slow down all of a sudden in a way that emphasizes the kind of inhibitory relaxation part of the response. Maybe it relates to the exhalation, maybe not. But it that's interesting uh, that you phrase it that way, because I'd never considered how, you know, bouncing the ball before you serve in tennis might actually be that space to, to take an inhalation and exhalation in line with that.
1: Yeah, I think it's a rhythm. I think it's a rhythm. And then I think the breathing goes along with that rhythm and then it gets them in that flow state, which again, which is so amazing about athletes. They're not analyzing all this. They just get into that habit of doing it. And obviously, the better the better players, I think, or what are the most successful ones, sometimes don't know how to utilize that to their advantage. Let's move on to something else, which I know a lot of listeners are probably why they tune into the podcast, because we like to also try to relate it the best we can to clinical. And I know, again, you're a researcher, but again, between the two of us, I like to come to hopefully some consensus or ideas. So let's take one of the areas: anxiety and depression. And you know, in the book Breath he refers to the works of Dr. Patricia Gerbog and there's a Dr. Brown. I know you're familiar with it. And supposedly they did seminal work and this whole idea of alleviating anxiety and depression through breath work. And in fact, I think they did also work with nine 11 survivors and they did something called slow resident or coherent breathing. Could you enlighten me more a little bit about what your take a little bit is from their work?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for asking about the technique that I'm most familiar with. <laughs> oh,
1: is that right? I didn't know that you see that was a, uh, <laughs> that was a blind shot, but okay. I'm glad. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, no, it relates. So I, I believe the, the basic premise of their slow and coherent breathing is that it is tailored to that kind of magic frequency. That it is generally a six breath per minute. They, they might, you know, it's funny. You see different numbers in different places. They might say five breath per minute. They, I know, I've, I've looked at their book and I know that they they phrase it slightly differently. And they also advise that. If you're breathing fast, you know, work your way down, do a meditation where you're going 13, 12, 11, 10 and working your way down to that coherent 5 breaths per minute. But they they also do the meditations that you're describing where there's like bells at the end. Except often they'll do it so they cue up the inhalation and exhalation switch with bells and so you listen and over time you're supposed to become more relaxed, but you're also tailoring your breathing to that frequency. So theirs is very much a basic Uh, slow and deep breathing type method Uh, they do have variations of that like resistance breathing where you're adding some sort of uh, barrier to it to make it a little more challenging so i i think that their the basis of their coherent breathing is that it is based on frequency it you know it's not it's a little bit different from buteyko and that they actually are encouraging a deep breath although i will say that compared to the voluntary elimination of deep breathing type techniques they really it's a similar thing because the the slower you breathe the the more the deeper you can go with each with each breath and you'll still keep your overall you know ventilation relatively standard over the course of 1 minute for instance um. So I don't, I don't think that the techniques are as different as they may be advertised. And I, I apologize mm-hmm. for alluding to that without having really gone over the. the. No, it's okay. Breathing.
1: You know, it's so funny. First of all, as we're doing this, by the way, I'm focusing on my breathing. So for the first time, I'm actually feeling very clear headed. But I, <laughs> one thing I wanted to point out to the listeners too, you know, when I was doing this work originally, I think to get to that six breaths a minute, it's good to, uh, let's say if you're sitting in a quiet place to breathe in and slowly count in your head to six as you feel your belly rising and your chest rising, and then again, slowly, and this is, I think I find even more difficult to slowly exhale for six, you know, a count of six, just so for the listeners to realize how to do this. Um, You know, another person who did really interesting work, I was fortunate in the 1990s to go to his workshop up in, at the Deaconess Hospital in Harvard was Herbert Benson. Mm-hmm. And he was very well known. He he published a book that became, a, I think it was a bestseller, The Relaxation Response. It was very interesting. He had studied uh, Tibetan monks. You know, he'd gone over there and he was amazed at what they could do when they went, you know, into these deep meditative states, how they could lower their blood pressure more amazingly, how they could go out in the freezing cold with wet towels and, dry the towels, you know, on their body. I mean, really amazing stuff. It was interesting when he brought them to his lab in Boston, they had more difficulty. It was interesting, probably because they were out of their milieu and their nature. They still were able to do pretty good, but not like they did in Tibet. But maybe you could also, again, help our listeners understand a little bit about what's interesting too, again, if you're familiar, is because Benson's work was really, I guess it was like associated with transcendental meditation. That's where, for my listeners to realize, it's like where you have a mantra, and so on your exhalation, you kind of, you know, like the, uh, like the Buddhist monks, they would say, Oh, that kind of thing. And there's something to that, you know, and something with these something called mayor waves. Maybe you could explain some of that to us as well.
0: Yeah. So Herbert Benson is the, the golden example, I think for a number of these techniques, because he pretty he coined the relaxation response as a term. Right. And that, that refers more to the slow and deep breathing, similar to the coherent one that we were just talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. They're really thing about herbert benson to me is he also got involved in this tummo meditation which is and it has different varieties but the most popular is the more sympathetically oriented that you're you're huffing and puffing and you're you're warming your body and you're combining it with visualizations and you're doing all these things that are i think heavily informed by tibetan buddhism and so he really was a pioneer in a number of these techniques and you you mentioned transcendental meditation and so i think that i love the example of herbert benson because he is a living representation of the fact that breathing is not a one size fits all approach. And so, when you describe, you know, slowly and deeply breathing, and thank you for—I should have mentioned the fact that you can do it by just counting to counting to six or counting to ten, depending on how long you want it to be, and exhaling and doing the count. That's probably the simplest way to do it. There's all these apps now that make it easy. You can see a wave, or you can see a. Bounce. Oh, really? Interesting. Or, you can, oh, or hmm. you can put the phone on your abdomen, and you can make the, the accelerometer go up and down, and it will actually track. <laughs> So there's all these ways to do it. But I think the, the part that we hadn't discussed yet is there's also some benefit and Benson described some benefit to, you know, doing a quick activation of the sympathetic nervous system by breathing, almost hyperventilating briefly. And it's not necessarily recommended in every case. But what it seems to do is to shock the system. So it takes a system that's sedentary and it shocks it. It's like, I don't know if you've heard of like whole body hyperthermia. It's a technique where you heat the body in a depressed individual. You know, I was told once by a really good
1: osteopath who studied a lot in India was what they they call it sometimes piston or pumping breathing. It's where you're blowing out through your nose, in through your nose and alternating. It is, I it's kind of invigorating because I I almost also feel like it's like my diaphragm is moving up and down. You know, I mean, somebody has to show you carefully how to do it, but it's just kind of, just fascinating that again, with breath, what you could do to your physiology, you know, because we always think it's how much we exercise. We think it's what we're eating. You know, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, I mean, the, the whole thought of the lungs involved with weight control is mind blowing.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's incredible that you can actually, that the number one contributor to your, your weight loss is, you know, blowing off carbon dioxide and water. Like I, no. I, there's a lot of things you overlook when you get lost in the, the basic day to day of research. So yeah, I, I appreciate it. I guess they have to
1: get rid of those oxygen bars. Maybe we need to get a carbon dioxide bar. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's not a bad idea. I mean, they, they talked about the therapy approaches, right? That they're yeah. the one uh, patient who had her amygdala, uh, completely removed and the only thing that would send her into a panic was carbon dioxide she wouldn't freak out right when
1: was- right right he talked about it in the book wow yeah that was
0: just well, what about
1: also too just as it's funny it was in the article uh i don't know if you saw it in the one that you were quoted in and then i saw in 60 minutes about a week or two ago about those free divers what's with that like what what is going on in their life Are these like super healthy people i mean how are they able to do this? I mean, I know the training is a big deal, but and just again, just for our listeners, you know, they, they had on 60 Minutes, they had the guy, he was like the top guy in the world. I think he was from Romania. He would go down like, uh, you know, how many hundreds of feet without an oxygen tank, you know, And they and you would see him like sort of do this kind of, I can't even explain it, like sucking in breathing before he would actually do the deep dive. But I mean, they have to be retaining a lot of carbon dioxide, right? I mean, if they're not... Or is it no? I
0: I imagine they are. That's, I think then the number one hypothesis to my mind about how they're doing it is that they have incredibly enhanced chemoreceptor flexibility. So they're able Mm. to very strongly control their respiration in a way that does not set them into panic when they're losing carbon dioxide.
1: Oh God. I mean, I'm underwater six seconds (laughs) you'll see the (laughs) white flag. Get me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I should say when they're holding in carbon dioxide, it doesn't send them into a panic. But yeah, this is another one of those things that I feel like I'd be more qualified to comment on it if I could do it. And I'm not an expert free diver. Yeah.
1: yeah, It's just true. Sometimes, you know, like I respect what you're saying. I mean, sometimes you have to really do these things. As I said, I've, I've done a lot of these courses and stuff like that too. And I, I, again, you can't be a spectator. You need to be a participant.
0: Yeah. But I, I agree with what you were saying at first with the you know the piston pumping that that could be one way to do it my understanding is that helps train the diaphragm and also maybe yeah, to your ability, it up yeah yeah push it up and to deal with levels of carbon dioxide that normal people might freak out about. Um, So that, to my understanding, that's the the current hypothesis. I, to me, it's so extreme that I feel like maybe there's something more going on there, Mm. but I I haven't read, I think Nestor wrote another book on, didn't he write a book on that as well before the breathing book on? I didn't know that.
1: It's funny. I better look at his other books. I know he's done a lot of different things where he typically goes through the process, which is fascinating. You know, we all know that you know, when you, you walk the walk, it, uh, it, it has a little more interest and excitement to it. So if that's the case, I will have to look into that because, uh, yeah, he's, I believe he's into diving. I think that that's also one of the things that led him to this. But, you know, one of the things just to get back to too. And, and again, all these clinical applications, he said he just did not feel well for a while. He had major sinus problems and he thought it was leading to other issues and. You know, and as I mentioned with John Kabat-Zinn's work with chronic pain, I mean, this is just really incredible stuff. I mean, how breath work, work doing mindfulness, you know, can really have such a profound effect without using drugs, without having to have a surgery. I mean, we all want the quick fix, but if we know something's super safe and it's just a question of discipline, you know, maybe more doctors- should be recommending this stuff
0: yeah it's it's probably relates to that you know the lack of discipline probably relates to the fact that there's so many negative consequences that in a way you you know you're cognitively fuzzy you've lost a bit of the will to do these things in the first place One of the number one arguments in depression is that, oh, you should do this, but if you're depressed, you might not have the motivation to do it. And so even what small amount of reward you get, oh, you're probably not, you know, okay, I felt better. In a way, you almost don't want to be better. Um, You know, in a way, there's mechanisms that are saying, oh, I'm not, you know, there's anhedonia, there's lack of motivation to common things. And so I think that getting around that, to me, finding a way to clinically promote healthy breathing in that population, whether it's something as simple as a chemical composition that you don't that, you know, any way you can do it that encourages the behavior and eventually makes someone with that condition realize that this is good for me um, is probably the best way to get around that.
1: You know, I'll tell you something interesting because you made me think about this, which I hadn't even thought about before, which was so much fun about our discussion. I think what really works, and that's what kabat did. I actually ran a program like this in New York 20 years ago. It was so much fun. The patients loved it was that when you're in a group, because when you're in a group, see, versus let's say, let's say a patient came in to me individually and I said, okay, you're suffering with some anxiety and depression. We do need to use some medication, but here, I want to show you some breathing exercises. I would tell you nine out of 10 will not do the breathing exercises. But if I said to that patient, look, we'll treat you some medication. We'll protect you this way. I'm going to show you some breathing exercises, but you're coming to this group with 10 other people would have similar or some, some variation of what you have, whatever. This is mandatory, or it will help you. I will tell you something. What I found is eight or nine out of the 10 when people go to those things will do the work, enjoy the process because they're not, you know, they're not really suffering alone and they're seeing other people benefit and they exchange ideas and their struggles. And the whole idea of group support really could be very profound. And again, that's something where we fail in the healthcare system. They they always talk about all these things we're failing in the healthcare system. We are. But, you know, I think one of the biggest things we're failing is not getting people to be physically involved together. You know, I mean, it's, it's nice to have like Facebook support groups. I, don't know, I shouldn't say Facebook, but any kind of groups, you know, where people discuss their problems. But what I saw with Cabot zinns work up in uh, Massachusetts was when these people came in together, there was a certain amount of empathy, camaraderie, and then the work got done, you know? So anyway, I mean, I, I think it's a wonderful thing it, for example, uh, you know, my son went to Michigan, and uh, I saw that some of the advisors there, some of them who were trained by Kabat-Zinn, it was really interesting because I was talking to them. They used to have uh, run mindfulness sessions for the students, which I thought was great. I mean, here you have a lot of young college students. Okay, yeah, most of them probably quote are really physically healthy, but mentally they're so stressed out and they're nervous, and they're for the first time they're they're in such competition with their peers for grades that something like this could be life-changing. I mean, I wish I knew it when I was in college, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I can't confirm that part. I This this semester is, has been uh, teaching heavy for me. And if there was mm. one thing that I would love to do, it would be to find a way to make it mandatory to try out some of these things. But yeah. th- these aren't the things that are front and center when it comes to curricular activities, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about that for for some time as well. You know, finding a way to, to use, you mentioned social support, and I, I love that because it works in both ways. If you find social support rewarding, then there you go, you're likely to do it. If you're instead afraid of not being approved, if you tend to be motivated by fear, it still works because, you know, that the grade or the lack of support, that's just as much of a motivating factor. So I, it's almost, it's built into us, the social mandate to you know, to be, to cooperate. It's built into our evolution, I think. So I love that as a way to, to, you know, encourage good behavior.
1: Yeah. Well, I've had so much fun. I'm so glad you were able to accept my offer to come on the program. I hope my listeners get so much out of this, appreciate what proper breathing and breath work could do to change your life. Thank you, Dr. Noble, for taking the time to inform us on your research. And for all my listeners Think about taking some time to slow down your breathing, some nice deep ones, so you can feel a little bit less stressed and more energetic. And if you enjoy this podcast, please, if you have time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at MD or the smartest doctor in the room, and we'll do our best to get back to you. It's been an honor to talk to you, Dr. Mitchell. Oh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean DeanMitchellMD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.